0: thinking people realize that solving such problems requires systematic observation and the gathering of many facts. All the factors bearing on the problem have to be investigated. Then, the facts have to be studied to find the best ways of solving the problem. This is the method of common sense thinking fully as much as it is the method of science. But the scientist uses this method for a deeper purpose, to gain an understanding of the world in which we live. Welcome to Cybercriminology, a podcast about cybercrime, its research, and its researchers, and the start of a short series on cybercrime theory. Theory provides an important tool for scientific thought. It provides a supported explanation of the world that may unify accepted facts or model the mechanics of the world. It provides both a language and a path towards truth through the elimination of falsehoods. We start this series with an overview of cybercrime theories with Dr. Tom Holt. Dr. Holt is a professor in the School of Criminal Justice at Michigan State University, specializing in cybercrime, technology, and deviance. We started the discussion talking about routine activities theory.
1: When we think about routine activities, when we think about any behavior generally, we know that it's an act, it's performed by an individual. Uh, if we're thinking about something like crime, it's to a degree transactional. There's something that occurs between two individuals and they have to come together in time and space. So in a traditional crime event, you're thinking about an individual who could be a victim, an offender who's motivated by some specific drive, whether it's economic or personal. And when those two things converge, that's when a crime is possible.
0: So when we, when we take that theory from a physical space and we start applying it online, well, what is it that we need to consider?
1: First, that In cyberspace, there's not a necessary convergence. In a physical setting, the victim and the offender have to interact in some way in more or less real time. In virtual spaces, though, I can send an email and you may not receive it for minutes or hours or a day, depending on how frequently you check your messages. But if it has malicious software in it or a link out to something that could infect your computer, then the interaction between us is not temporally bound. It's limited based on when the victim decides to interact with it. So that lack of temporal bounding makes it somewhat different from traditional physical crime. The other one is that in routine activities theory, as a framework, you have an offender, you have a suitable target and then we should expect there to be an absence of a guardian, someone who can protect that victim or that potential target from compromise. In physical spaces, that could be other people, that could be cameras, uh, lighting, anything, even dogs, that could serve to affect the individual in the event. In cyberspace, though, We don't have the same degrees of guardianship. And what is there is more like software that can be antivirus or anti spam or firewalls. There's occasional uh, instances where a virtual social guardian could come into play, like, say, peers in a social media setting. But in general, the extent to which we can manipulate the environment through guardianship is, again, different from what we see in physical space.
0: So that that theory describes sort of a, a crime event, but there are a few little changes, like there, there's a little bit of change, but it, it generally applies quite well? Like there are a number of papers that work with this and support it pretty well?
1: In empirical literature, there's a fair amount of support. The bigger questions tend to revolve around the guardianship factors. So in studies, for instance, of malicious software infections, the role of antivirus software and other protective tools can be mixed. Sometimes they decrease, sometimes they increase, sometimes there's no effect. So it's hard to necessarily know what guardians are going to play the most appropriate role and how functionally sophisticated and useful they are.
0: That's talking about the crime as an event, and that's a that's a theory for that. Mm-hmm. Let's let's talk a little bit more about the criminal and and, and crime being a, a choice that they they might make because that that particular theory sort of describes the absence of a guardian and the the presence of a victim and the motivated criminal so let's talk about what would motivate that criminal in terms of of making a choice
1: yeah when we talk about routine activities it's born out of this so-called classical framework where we think about crime as a choice it's a decision made by an actor on the basis of weighing the perceived costs for engaging in a crime, whether that's being arrested, punished, whether it's uh, potentially social rejection from peers or family and the perceived benefits. So if an individual views gaining money or whatever it is that they perceive of value within the target to be more worthwhile and the reduced risk of detection or arrest or social sanction is lower relative to the rewards, then the person will engage in that behavior. So that perceived rational choice to engage in activity is shot through routine activities theory, but we can also see it in other frameworks surrounding criminological research generally, like uh, deterrence theory or situational crime prevention.
0: Let's talk about deterrence theory for a moment. This the, the ideas from deterrence theory, I think, make their way into popular culture quite a lot and common conception. But what is the idea behind deterrence theory?
1: It actually supports most Western justice systems. The idea that individuals can understand that there are consequences for action and that if we make those consequences with respect to the justice system, sufficiently severe, proportional to the offense, occurring swiftly after the crime takes place, and that there is a certainty of punishment, that I'll be detected, I'll be arrested, I'll be sanctioned. That if we can make punishments swift, certain, severe, and proportional relative to the offense, that justice system uh, sanctions should be enough to keep people from offending. Realistically, when we talk about that in an offline crime context, we know that deterrence is not necessarily successful, but there are offshoots of deterrence research, such as uh, perceptual deterrence, so that role of kind of social information about punishments, having a friend, say, be arrested for engaging in some behavior, can have an influence on how you choose to act. Uh, what some people refer to as vicarious experiences with punishment or with punishment avoidance. Additionally, there's some really interesting work that comes up in this area looking at the role of what's called restricted deterrence. So as an offender, I may realize that there's in a physical space, for instance, that uh, this work's been done a lot with drug dealing. I may know that there is a risk of arrest and that there may be undercover officers who are posing as buyers who will come to me to seek out drugs. And so I can determine factors that would suggest this person may be an undercover officer or that I can see police in the area. And so I can actively choose when and how to deal and to whom. So I can behave in such a way as to reduce my risk of detection. So that kind of uh, restrictive deterrence, engaging in an offense, even in the face of potential sanction is really important. And we've seen some work emerging in the virtual space, looking at how actors are using online communities as a means of offending. There's some work, for instance, looking at the rise of virtual markets for uh as a service, whether we're talking about data sales, hacking tools, or the rise of darknet drug markets. So I can go online and buy marijuana or other substances from a dealer on the dark web. And I don't have to present the physical risk of going to a dealer, getting potentially bad drugs or, or engaging in risky behaviors, whereas I can just sit behind my computer and pay somebody in Bitcoin and it'll be shipped to me in the mail.
0: How much of uh, of an organ of implementation of restriction here is is newspapers and and tech blogs and things like that.
1: And realistically, the assumption within most deterrence research is that people should be aware of the law so that they can then in turn choose rationally, is my action worth the potential consequence? With cybercrime, there's not as much communication of what laws are in place. Uh, There are attempts to do that, like with digital piracy. There's usually warnings at the beginning of DVDs or uh, downloads that you may buy that you shouldn't reproduce the material without permission. But the extent to which those messages th- sink through is, is questionable. And how much impact they have for every person is variable. So the, the salience of the messaging is something that is really important. We don't know. Anecdotally, it seems as though it's of limited value and that there are certain circumstances where it may have some success. There's some recent research, for instance, out of the UK, looking at messaging around the purchase of uh, what are called booter and stressor services. So Alice Hutchings, who's a researcher at Cambridge, who you had on in a previous episode, has done some work looking at the, the use of these services. So presenting individuals with messaging that if you pay for a booter service, you're breaking the law had some reductive impact on people's further pursuit of those services. So that realization that you're doing something illegal may have a reductive impact on behavior. It may deter some individuals, but we know deterrence is not complete. We can't keep every single person from offending. So it's trying to determine what those factors are that reduce the kind of uptake of the messaging that that's important.
0: We'll circle back to that in just a second. But there's two elements that you spoke of before, well, three from deterrence theory, the swiftness, certainty, and severity of, of punishment. The Severity is, is something that I, I guess the justice system has a, a lot of control over because it, it controls sentencing. But The, the swiftness of, of the process and the certainty of, of getting caught Those are a little bit more questionable, particularly in cyberspace with the difficulties of attribution and just the problematic nature of trying to enforce laws online. How does that play an impact on on the effectiveness of these theories?
1: A very good point. We don't know. And there's some anecdotal evidence to suggest that individuals realizing that they're not going to face any risk of arrest, for instance, uh, thinking about the U.S. in international contexts... We have no extradition relationship with Russia. And so Russian hackers will commonly target US infrastructure knowing they face no legal risk within the United States and their country is not necessarily going to have any role or need to send the person overseas for prosecution. So you can engage at will in attacks against US targets. The only risk comes in when you decide to go on vacation and leave the borders of Russia To go to a country that may have a friendly relationship with the united states so the potential for the certainty of punishment can be relatively low the severity also is something that is relatively suspect if i cause millions of dollars in damages or economic loss to a target through a data breach or through fraudulent charges then while there's no physical harm that individuals incur the economic harm is distributed across a a broad number of people, perhaps more so than what we might expect with physical crime. But you don't see many individuals, particularly in the United States, receiving harsh, say, 30, 40, 50-year sanctions. The only time that we see relatively harsh punitive sanctions for cybercrime tends to relate to uh, child pornography and uh, CSAM or child sexual abuse material charges where it's about 10 years per image. And so in those cases, you will see someone being uh, incarcerated for 100 or 200 or 300 years. But that disparity is, is also somewhat unusual that we would have really harsh sentencing for one type of offense, but not for the other, even though the commensurate harms can be somewhat uneven. So it's a it's a difficult space when we think about applying deterrence theory to cybercrime because of the international issues that are at play, the sanctions that are involved, and the certainty of punishment depending on your risk of detection. Uh, David Maimon, for instance, has done some work looking at warning banners and kind of expressive messaging around the capacity for law enforcement and investigation. And it doesn't seem to impact hacker behavior in a demonstrable way when they're in a network. It might reduce slightly the amount of time a person spends in the network, but they don't immediately leave upon seeing that banner. So deterrence may not always be possible with cybercrime.
0: Yeah, I, I guess at that point, I mean, we're we're talking about the situation of, of crime and we're talking about a, sort of the salience of messaging and and being aware in that moment and providing cues that A, you're doing something illegal, and B, people are are aware that you're doing it.
1: There's also a fair amount of work recognizing that online subcultures for offenses communicate information to the participants. So if I'm in a forum related to digital piracy or computer hacking, and even in some cases with sexual offenses, there's clear communication between the participants, hey, this is illegal. How do we get around this? Um, What do we do if we still want to engage in this behavior, knowing that there's legal risks? So there's a recognition that the law may punish you. But how do I get around that? How do I minimize the likelihood of detection? So that goes back to that idea of uh, restrictive deterrence.
0: And, and I guess somewhere in here, we've we've managed to come up with another good reason to um, worry about the environment and global warming, because the beaches of Thailand seem to be an excellent instrument for international criminal justice. <laughs>
1: You mean for extradition?
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you're, if you're in, in the cold wilds of, a, of an extradition-free country, the beaches of Thailand are a, are a big temptation, I guess.
1: Yes, they can be. And the same for uh, some of the Italian lakes and uh, certain parts of, of France and Europe where there's good beaches. So it's, a, it's an interesting point, for sure. Let's,
0: let's look after that environment. But I, I, I guess that that brings us across to a, a different um, aspect that might have a, an impact on, on, on decision-making, and, and that is the idea of, of
1: self-control. Self-control is a, is a great framework in criminological research because it's been found to have tremendous support. It's a relatively simple idea, and it's in line with the rational choice framework. The basic argument is that people with low self control are impulsive, short sighted, risk takers. And when faced with an opportunity to offend, they're going to act on that opportunity, even though they may be aware of punishments or, or sanctions, because that impulsivity, that kind of weak impulse control, makes them more prone to act on opportunity when it's available. So the combination of opportunity and low self control may. Increase an individual's likelihood of offending even in the face of, of sanction.
0: The kinds of offenses that this is is more likely to apply to. so uh, like a, an impulsive decision to commit a crime. is it all all types of crime or or is it more likely to apply to particular
1: types of crime? When we look at the research about traditional physical crimes, it seems to apply in most all contexts with limited utility for something like say, white collar crime, where there's degrees of access and potential questions about how much uh, someone in a business setting may have low self-control, or at least in sort of higher positions for some types of white collar crime. When we look at it with cyber crime, it seems to have very good application to most types of offenses with only one real exception. And that seems to be with regard to computer hacking. And it does relate to simple forms of computer hacking like password guessing or adding, deleting and changing information in certain types of email accounts or, or basic computer systems. But we seem to expect, and there's some evidence to, to indicate that individuals with higher levels of self-control are more likely to engage in complex hacking whereas those with low self-control are not, with the idea being that when you have to say, sit down and create a piece of software where you have to spend hours coding or kind of compiling an exploit for use against a target, that requires patience, persistence, the things that we wouldn't necessarily equate with someone who has low self-control because they're not going to be willing to sit for hours at a time, or have that um, ability to think carefully and apply one's knowledge in a space in the same way as someone with higher self-control.
0: So the sort of more, and and I, I, I'm reluctant to say more sort of boring commonplace crimes, things like uh, trolling, harassment, downloading of uh, content, uh, like illegally, perhaps uh, non-consensual image distribution, things like that, things that don't require uh, a lot of work in terms of technical skill. Correct. Those might be uh, what we would consider something a little bit more li- along the lines of a, a low self-control type crime.
1: Yeah, and um, Part of that makes sense when we think about the technology that we have generally. Going online is very easy. Going to Facebook, going to social media platforms, all those opportunities are omnipresent. We have ample ability to go and say something to anyone in any online space. Sending an email or a text takes no real effort on the part of the person. Instead, it's more about constraining your own behavior. When someone says something mean to you online or is trolling you, you're the one who has to keep yourself from firing back at them. And the same is true with digital piracy where there's tons of content available online. So you're the person who's responsible for keeping yourself from from downloading content. Same with viewing pornography, same with looking at uh, images that may have been acquired illicitly. So those activities are the types of things that a person with low self-control is going to have to restrict themselves from doing because the opportunity is is constant.
0: In order to talk sort of about those those things that, that this doesn't cover very well, I guess we, we, we can switch to a different perspective on, on crime and criminals and sort of look at more putting them into their context, taking their history into account, uh, other sorts of factors. And in literature, they talk about this as a positivist perspective, I think. You correct me if I'm wrong, but we're sort of really switching to think of crime more of as a result of some circumstances or some, some things that have may have happened in the past or, or that are sort of determined previously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I, uh, I'm i thinking particularly here of, of social learning theory.
1: Well, yeah, that's a great kind of segue from the low self-control literature to the social learning literature as well. Uh, if we think about computer hacking as a complex behavior that requires persistence, patience, learning, understanding, the extent to which an individual may have low self-control, they may be able to guess their friend's password to get into their email account or their social media accounts but to do that to a stranger where you have no understanding of who they are or to create a piece of malicious software there's a degree of knowledge expertise patience that a person has to have and the information that you you may need to do it successfully is something that's going to require the individual to gather that information in some way And so the evidence suggests that for some individuals, particularly those engaging in more sophisticated types of hacking, self-control is less important relative to having peers who can communicate that information to you, so who can provide you with insights about building a tool or understanding where to go for information about how to hack or how to build a program in a certain way. And so the social learning frameworks are very useful to bridge that gap. Social learning essentially argues that crime is a learned behavior like any other type of activity. And we learn it based on associations with others. For crime specifically, our differential associations to individuals who engage in legal activities is vital because those sources of information can communicate to us definitions about why it's okay to break the law, why an activity is justifiable, as well as the methods to engage in that behavior. They can also serve as sources of imitation. So we can model their behavior and that can serve as sort of an insight into the offense and it can serve as a way to Model future offending as well. So it's a way to think about that onset of criminality as well as its persistence over time. One of the last variables in that model, that social learning framework, is also uh, differential reinforcements. So when you engage in an illegal activity, going back to deterrence, there's always a risk of punishment. So an individual's experience with either punishment or punishment avoidance, where nothing happens, as well as social reinforcement for the behavior. If your peers say, wow, that's awesome that you were able to hack this, you may get some social status out of it or or gain some clout within the community. All those things will reinforce the value of engaging in a hack for you in the hacker community. So social learning has a, a substantive degree of value for some types of cybercrime.
0: So under this this idea, you sort of grow up in a in a space with a, a culture that means that you're still making a rational decision, but you've been very much influenced by your upbringing, the people around you, the things that you've seen, such that that decision-making process might not be the same as a law-abiding, um, straight-laced, button-up citizen, someone someone like myself, uh, who, who would never ever dream of doing something like that. But for you, it makes sense.
1: Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and so the extent to which we have associations with peers who've engaged in illegal activity, that becomes our models for future behavior. The extent to which those associations vary in terms of their priority, So the importance of that person to us, having best friends who engage in crime or parents and uh, loved ones in a broader family setting can also serve as these important sources for social modeling. So the more we have a concentration of delinquent peers or criminal peers and associates in our networks, the more likely we are to potentially accept these definitions that crime is acceptable so that gives us an ability to differentiate actors on the basis of offending versus non-offending relative to these peer associations and the overall network you're in
0: we were talking a little bit about culture and maybe the cultural group that a person grew up in but what if we find other cultures or or we become a part of a a different culture, a subculture, maybe a group that we find online or a, a bunch of friends that we fall into or, or something like that. What, what roles do subcultures play?
1: Subcultures are sort of an offshoot of the idea of crime as a learned behavior. So a subculture can exist either in opposition to a dominant culture in the area or as a unique uh, community surrounding a behavior where that action becomes the sort of defining part of your identity. So in a traditional context and offline research, we might think of gangs as a subculture or uh, certain types of communities, even around say like your local sports teams, the extent to which you wear colors, you have known individuals. There's a a language that you use to develop, to understand who belongs to the group and who is outside of it, who are our common opponents and uh, why do they exist in opposition to us? So, subcultural research is useful to understand certain forms of delinquency and crime. And we can see it having tremendous value for online spaces because the internet has fostered our ability to find people who share a common interest. No matter how esoteric the topic may be or how kind of far-flung, there's at least a handful of people who you can meet online who share that interest. And so subcultures in an online space provide an environment where you can communicate with others, you can share information, gain insights about why that behavior is valuable. And there's tons of uh, research surrounding deviant sexual subcultures in online spaces, the extent to which uh, individuals may use online resources, for instance, as a means to engage in a behavior like bug chasing. That's a colloquial term among the group as a way to reference seeking out sexual partners who are HIV positive with the intent of getting the disease yourself. So this kind of desire to pursue HIV positive partners is something that in a broader offline context may be stigmatized, may have some negative consequences for you socially but online you can find others who share that interest. And so the internet is kind of a great leveler, whether it's related to sexual behavior, uh, computer hacking as a subculture, uh, kind of intense digital piracy, downloading lots and lots of content. The same thing we can even think of terrorism and extremist behaviors as its own distinctive subculture where you have a direct group that you operate in opposition to whether it's far right groups far left groups jihadist entities all of those actors are using the digital environment as a platform to connect and communicate
0: that pro- provides some perspective on on rule 34 <laughs> <Yeah>. um <laughs> yeah let, let's say that's a it's a quiet time research activity for <laughs> for people listening. I'm not going to go into that. Um, so there might be perhaps a reason why uh, these groups are are like particular types of groups or, or or people in particular situations might be more attracted to um, deviant type behaviors. And there are theories that that suggest that there is a a stress placed on people. Um, by circumstance, by society, and and crime is sort of a
1: a a result of that.
0: Would you be able to talk a little bit about these these strain
1: theories and and cyber? Historically, the strain construct in uh, sociological research fed into criminological research, and we can go back to the late eighteen hundreds with Durkheim and some of his work surrounding anomy. And we can see it shot through a sort of U.S. criminological tradition, which has evolved over time into what we now refer to as strain theories. So the more common uh, model of strain that's used to examine cybercrime is uh, Agnew's general strain theory. The basic argument is that individuals experience strain as a sort of negative emotion or anger, frustration, and that can stem from a variety of different circumstances. He defines strain coming from the presence of a negative or a noxious stimuli, so something that you don't want. It could be physical abuse, it could be a negative relationship to a peer or a parent, uh, the removal of positively valued stimuli, so the death of a loved one, uh, say breaking up with a girlfriend or boyfriend, Uh, We could also have a failure to achieve a positively valued goal. So whether it's a desire to, among juveniles, say get good grades, make a specific sports team, you can kind of equate that to a variety of different things for adults and for juveniles as well. So when we experience a situation that leads us to feel strain, that strain may push us toward delinquency or crime, dependent upon the coping mechanisms that we have available to us. So if you're the type who, when you get mad or you get angry or sad, your first uh, inclination is to have a drink or have a cigarette or use some drugs, those behaviors may predispose you additionally to engage in acts of crime or delinquency. That sort of negative path may increase your willingness to offend as a means of coping with the stress and anger that you experience. And so we see that used with a fair amount of juvenile delinquency with respect to offline crime research. Uh, it works well for, as I mentioned, drug use, uh, has some ability to account for violence uh, when we look at it in online spaces, though, it's mostly been used to look at cyberbullying and certain forms of interpersonal harassment in an online space, because that makes intuitive sense. Uh, it's a little harder if we were to try to apply that to, say, something like computer hacking or digital piracy, where it's an economic behavior, or at least it can be. And so that kind of expressive element of relieving frustration and anger may not be be the best way to think about uh, some of the other types of cybercrime that exists yeah
0: that's that, that's interesting I mean the thing that comes to mind for me when thinking about that is is uh, Nigerian crews running advanced fee fraud primarily against uh, developed countries. Rather than targeting anybody or, and everybody, sort of the the sense of injustice about being trapped in a third world country might influence the choice of targets there.
1: certainly makes sense that they're going to target, say, senior citizens, people who are on dating websites, people who are already potentially emotionally fragile or who have a predisposition or an inclination to accept or trust what they're being communicated at face value.
0: This is a, a sort of a, a set of well-known theories for online crime. There are some others the one I'm thinking of it is is digital drift, the the adaption of, of drift theory
1: to online crime. Digital drift, it's an interesting idea. Uh, it goes back to Matza's work from the 60s, looking at drift as a way to account for juvenile delinquency. Uh, His work was sort of a response to some control theories, so arguments that individual's attachment to others is what will either constrain people from offending or freeze them to offend. But his argument was that juveniles are not purely delinquents or purely law-abiding. Instead, people will act on opportunities and play different roles depending on different times and different days. And so the extent to which individuals drift from delinquent behavior to conforming behavior is dependent upon their exposure to peers, their connections to other people, the, their ability to understand and justify their actions. In other words, neutralize a sense of personal responsibility for engaging in an action. But that's coupled with a sense that the juvenile justice system has no real ability to control delinquency. In other words, going through the juvenile uh, justice system, you're not necessarily going to be incarcerated. The consequences are very low. You can be passed through it multiple times. And so as a result, the justice system isn't a mechanism of control or deterrence. And our peer associations communicate ways to further justify responsibility and deny responsibility for wrongdoing. So, it frees youth to offend or not offend just at will. And that idea was initially very interesting. It didn't get as much empirical testing as we might have hoped or at least have thought for through the uh, 60s and the 70s. And uh, Russell Brewer and Andrew Goldsmith from Australia brought it back in, the, I believe it was 2015, and argued we can revisit this concept of drift and think about it in an online space because the way in which we engage with online materials can be uh, sort of varied. If you've ever fallen into like a Wikipedia hole where you start looking at one thing and you wind up 15 steps down the road at something entirely different, it's because we can kind of move through a space in a relatively uh, vague and ambiguous fashion. And so as we start drifting down a path, We may not realize it, but the more information we're being exposed to as we drift from one idea to the next in an online environment, the more we may begin to feel a a freedom, a a sense of uh, no longer being connected to your physical self and feel a sense that you can engage in whatever offense may be plausible. Initially, they talked about this in the context of uh, some child sexual offenses as well as terrorism, but myself and uh, Rusty and Andrew have started to revisit this a little bit more and think, how do we expand it out? How do we move it toward more of that original matza conception? Uh, we sort of started at the beginning by talking about the relative ineffectiveness of the justice system to deter cybercrime. So if people realize they're not going to be punished for these activities, at least by police or, or traditional criminal justice apparatus, then there's already a sense of freedom. And when you couple that with information that can be acquired through online subcultures, through peer associations, then suddenly an online environment becomes a very welcoming one for criminality.
0: Drift theory always makes me think of Drake. Yeah. Started from the bottom, now I'm here.
1: (laughs) That's pretty good. I've never heard it put that way. But it's uh, yeah, it's not a bad idea because it makes sense. Depending on where you start, there's tons of you know odd conspiracy theories that now exist, and so you may see a hashtag on Instagram that takes you from what you think is kind of a, a legitimate political discussion to someone talking about QAnon and Pizzagate and other very, very kind of out there ideas. And so there's there's some application of this theory that makes sense. It's trying to model that now and, and test it empirically, which is something we're, we're trying to do at the moment.
0: Oh, uh, I want to mention here that there is, there, there is a theory that is um, specific to, to cyber and it sort of integrates some of these elements from, from other theories, but it's primarily about the difference that the online environment creates or going online, and that's space transition theory.
1: Space transition theory was created by uh, Jay Shankar, an Indian uh, academic, as a way to further think about the online environment and its role in offending. So it combines various theoretical frameworks together into a single model. And it's a it's an interesting idea, but it's one that hasn't gotten much empirical support, and there's there's relatively limited tests of it. And you see that kind of commonly with integrated theories. The difficulty is in mashing together different frameworks and different models. You have to figure out the best ways to put the variables together. Uh, when you think about a concept like, say, social learning, where it has four distinct variables that are supposed to operate in concert with one another, identifying those variables and then combining them with others from different theories. You've got to think carefully about, am I taking a classical theory and trying to merge it with a positivist theory? Am I doing it in a way that makes sound theoretical sense? Are they compatible? And so integrated theories can often be very complicated and have a lot of moving parts compared to some other more uh, sort of parsimonious theories like low self-control where you're really only looking at a couple of things operating simultaneously in in, in my head at,
0: at least a quite different approach from that would be to rather than think of people and then the effect of technology on them would be to think of technology and people together as a sort of an inseparable thing and look at the relationships uh, and and i'm i'm thinking here and probably uh, conceptually mangling actor network theory
1: actor network theory is a very interesting idea and it's one that could relate to cybercrime in some very interesting ways it basically thinks about the extent to which there is agency across multiple areas So as an individual, I have some degree of agency over my behavior. I also interact with computer systems, with networks, and they also have some degree of of agency as we're moving to points in time where programs can do things in an automatic fashion and our extent to which we interact with those automated programs, we're now in a space where we as human beings are interacting with networks and computer systems that also have their own specific roles. And so the extent to which our computers, our software, our devices, are extensions of our own activities and can be, to a certain degree, their own autonomous entities we're now in a, in a complex space. And uh, it's a theory that I don't understand as well as I, I might like either. Uh, Witske van der Wagen, who's a, a researcher from the Netherlands, has done some work looking at how this might be used to understand hacking and botnets. And so the extent to which uh, computer programs can serve as a nexus to computer hackers and then to victims is really interesting. It gets us to thinking more about the way that we all interact simultaneously, as opposed to thinking of a tool just as an extension of the hacker. To what extent does the tool or the program or the network become its own entity in the offense as well?
0: So that sort of covers off a general overview of maybe the the most commonly applied or, or, or the ones that are out there um, that that have a little bit more support perhaps. But that's not to say that that's all of the theories that that can or have been applied to uh, cybercrime or deviance online. Uh, there are many others. In fact, uh,
1: one that we can think of as an integrated theory is the combination of low self-control and routine activities. So the extent to which I, as an actor, have low impulse control, how that might shape my perceived uh, use of guardians. So am I less likely to use, say, antivirus software or other protective tools in an efficient and appropriate fashion relative to someone with, say, higher self-control? Uh, As a person with low self-control, I'm more likely to engage in acts of crime or deviance myself. And so does that put me in greater proximity to offenders? So to what extent does low self-control interact with the routine behaviors that we engage in to increase the risk of either victimization or or other factors? And that's a very interesting integration that seems to have a lot of potential application to cybercrime victimization. And there's a growing literature around that
0: that idea that um, people with low self-control might associate with other people with low self-control and then create a a, a culture where they all learn together as a a complex interplay between all of those elements i mean i guess the point is there's there is no one ultimate theory
1: it's also difficult when we think about criminological theory because really we're we're creating a lot of these ideas and so as humans, we may have one idea that we really latch on and it takes hold, we find it really useful, but there's disagreement over which ones are better, which ones are more theoretically informed, so we can only take what the empirical literature tells us. And there are other frameworks, there's, say, uh, sort of developmental theories of crime that try to track onset of behavior to persistence to desistance things like uh, Samson and Laub's work identifying pathways through criminality or trajectories of offending. And we haven't seen those types of model, models applied as well in online spaces, but certainly they, they have relevance and a lot of, of good support to account for traditional crime. So our questions are now, how do we build good longitudinal data sets tracking the same groups of kids over time? to begin to develop a data set that would allow for testing developmental theories. But the same is true for biological or what some might call biosocial theories of crime, identifying if there are distinct biomarkers or certain factors within our biology or our our brain chemistry that may shape the risk of offending. Uh, There's some work even looking at things like, say, technology addiction and its risk or its relationship to offending uh, even psychological research has some sway here. So there's many different frameworks that could be applied. The The benefit though, is that since cybercrime research is still in its infancy within our discipline, there's a lot of room for testing and for growth and really trying to understand what do we know and how do we apply these unique explanations that have been used largely for offline crime and how well do they work to account for online behavior.
0: I want to just make sure we mention sort of within that integrative bucket would be cyber routine activities theory, which is lifestyle theory and, and routine activities theory applied for for online.
1: Yes. So that's the work of Renz and Henson and a few others looking at how we might alter that routine activities framework to better fit in an online space.
0: So plenty, plenty of theories out there but still plenty of space for new theories and testing of these theories and and lots of room for people to um, prove and make more true truths.
1: And uh, to do that, we're going to need lots more research. We need lots more data collection. That's really the biggest weakness in the field at the moment is the lack of really strong longitudinal data sets, good nationally representative samples, so we can know how well a theory actually works in practice within a a specific population a lot of it's based on smaller juvenile samples or occasional college sets or things like that so the wave of the future the things that are really going to help build this field are those new data sets that could be formed and to help kind of push the the discipline forward we've organized a conference called the human factor in cybercrime It's a way to bring together social scientists, whether you're in criminology, psychology, whatever, or the technical sciences as well. So computer science, engineering, the more we can communicate and understand our own discipline's specific knowledge and then try to link them together, the better our fields are going to get, specifically with something like, say, actor network theory where there's recognition of the interplay between the human and the system. That's great. That's the kind of stuff that's going to help improve our overall state of knowledge. So the Human Factor and Cybercrime Conference is in its third year, and it'll be held in Montreal in November of 2020. And so we'll have a call for papers out shortly uh, seeking new work that can be presented there.
0: And Montreal in November is still worth visiting. I certainly hope so.
1: No, it is. It is. I can tell you. I can
0: tell. You. It's still. It's still wonderful in November. Everything's still great. Maybe not as green as it is in July, but still, it's still very worth coming. Uh, the the other thing is the the cybercrime division uh, of the American Society of Criminology. I Just wanted to give you congratulations for being involved in getting that finally up and and going.
1: Oh, thank you. Yes, it's been a long time coming. It's nice to have a division established. Basically, it gives us a little more credence within the discipline, and it also creates an environment where young scholars, older researchers who've been working in this for a while can all come together and talk about what we're doing and recognize good work, identify kind of emboldened new areas of study and try to encourage growth in the field.
0: Well, Tom. Thank you very much for taking the time to, to run through some, some cybercrime theory. And uh, this serves, I, I hope, as a wonderful introduction to the, the, the episodes that will follow. But uh, yeah, thank you very much for your time.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for having me. This is a topic I love to talk about.
0: Big thanks to Dr. Holt for taking the time to give a quick overview on cybercrime theory. If you found something in that discussion intriguing, please make sure to subscribe as we'll be diving into a number of these theories in the coming episodes. This has been Cybercrimeology, a podcast about cybercrime, its research, and its researchers. It's produced by me, but it's made possible by the kind guests sharing their time and their research. If you would like to know more about the topics or papers mentioned in this show, please check out the show notes at cybercrimeology.com. If you have a question or comment, you can reach me at at cybercrimology on Twitter or by old fashioned email at
1: cybercrimology at gmail.com.